Yeah, Tony touches on a really important thing there, doesn't he? You know, we honour each other, don't we? We honour each other, we respect each other, we value each other. And, um, you know, we don't prescribe to this mentality, do we, where it's like, you know, well, I'm not going to big anybody up because I don't want them to get a swelled head. I think, what a, you know, what an awful mentality that is, you know. Let's be encouraging to one another, you know. When you see somebody struggling, put an arm around them. When you see somebody doing something noteworthy, you know, and worthy of praise, then you praise them and you praise them well. You know, we're a church that honours. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Tony. That was... I, well, I hear that it was a fantastic word last week, actually, but I wasn't actually here for it. So, you know, I'm hoping and praying that I can get to the end of my sermon today without having to go to A&E. Um, if, if one of our children run in, well, Holly's there anyway, but if one of those two boys come in today, you know, and somebody's got blood gas rushing down their face, they're just going to have to wait until after I've preached. All right, I'm making a habit of this. Twice in a, twice in a year we've had to rush off to A&E during a meeting, so uh, it's not going to happen today. Um, so it was, uh, it was a great service as well, wasn't it, last week? Really, really awesome time, uh, you know, in, in worship. And, uh, you know, so I was a little bit gutted that I'd, uh, that I'd, not, that I'd missed Tony's, Tony's uh, message. But Jimmy was a brave boy, weren't he, Luce? He was a very brave boy, and he's back to his normal self, as you probably heard this morning. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's healed up all right. So it's the beginning of a new year, isn't it? Um, well, I say it's the beginning of the new year. We're actually 12 days into it, aren't we? Uh, we've already had one Sunday, but, you know, we're still, you know, 2020, the celebrations of a new year is still fresh in our mind, isn't it? And what goes part and parcel with a new year is we've got a new series as well. Everybody say, well, hey new series. So what we're going to be talking about over the next nine weeks are the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about this. Uh, it's a series that I've wanted to do for, for, for quite a while. So we're going to take, um, there are nine fruits of the Spirit, by the way, if you didn't know, hence the nine weeks. We're going to do one, uh, one each week. Um, but for some of you, uh, you know, you're probably thinking to myself, if you're not familiar with the Bible, for instance, I know some people may have been Christians for years and been reading the Bible for years, and, you know, when I talk about the fruits of the Spirit, you're very familiar with that. It's a familiar term. Others, you know, I don't know about you youngsters or something, but you may be thinking to yourself, what is he talking about, bananas and grapes and stuff like that for? I'm going to explain that in a second, all right. So we find it in Galatians chapter 5. You can go, to, you can go there. We're going to read it together in a, in a moment's time. Uh, from verse 13 we're going to read from. But the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul labels them in his letter to the Galatians, uh, well, what are they? Well, in fact, you know what? As an introduction, let's, let's make it a little bit interactive. If you feel confident enough this morning, let's see if we can state all the nine fruits of the Spirit. This isn't, uh, there's no prizes or anything like that. And I promise the trapdoor underneath your seat won't open if you get any wrong as well. But come on, let's shout out. Can we name some of the fruits of the Spirit? What, sorry? Self-control. Love. Peace. Joy. Can we do them in order, please? No, I'm joking. <laughs> what else have we got? Yeah. <laughs> Amen, said your wife. <laughs> Goodness. I think we've done all nine anyway. That's brilliant. Aren't we a clever church, eh? Aren't we a good church? We've, uh, we, can, we can name all nine fruits of the Spirit. So, as I said, you'll find in Galatians 5 where the Apostle Paul, he, he, states, these, um, he states these nine specific behaviours if you like, well, he talks about them as fruits, things that are produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, 
So there are nine behaviours, essentially, uh, that are the product of the Holy Spirit being at work in a Christian's life. That's what's meant by fruit, that when the Holy Spirit works in a Christian's life, these nine behaviours are produced. And, you know, I just cast my mind back, actually, to... It was a good while ago, I can't remember what message it was in, but Tony touched on it, and I thought, you know what, it struck me as something of such significance that I'm just going to reiterate it. Um, And that is that... um, you know, sometimes we can, I think sometimes we can, we can get so infatuated with the gifts of the Spirit, yeah, that we sometimes forget about the fruits of the Spirit. I think that's a fair comment. I've, I've been around church long enough and I've been around our Pentecostal tradition long enough to think, you know, to know that that can be a fact in some cases. We can get so infatuated with the gifts of the Spirit that we forget about the fruits of the Spirit. And, you know, it, sometimes I think in our uh, in our Pentecostal tradition, which is what you know, which is what the AOG, the movement that we're a part of, Assemblies of God, Great Britain, birthed out of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, so this is very much our territory, and I think within that tradition, um, we can we can often it can be easy for us to look as, at, at the evidence of somebody fe- being filled with the Holy Spirit as by whether they operate the gifts of the Spirit. So you know, do they prophesy? Do they speak in tongues? Do they? Uh, can they interpret, etc., etc., etc. But the point I want to make this morning is that the fruits of the Spirit are, are, are of equal importance. And this is what Tony was getting at, which, is, which, is, which, was, which was really fantastic. Um, I think it can be easily forgotten that the truth is the fruits of the Spirit are of equal importance as evidence as whether somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit. Evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work in you. Um, you know, let us not forget that, because there can sometimes be this perception, I certainly feel, that, you know, the gifts of the Spirit are seen as the glamorous part, you know, and the fruits of the Spirit are just the basic stuff, and, you know, we don't pay too much attention to them. Can I say that's completely wrong? That's wrong thinking. Completely wrong thinking. You know, it, it, you, may, you may think, oh, Ken, I'll tell you what, Ken, when he stands up in church and when he prophesies, I'm sorry if your name's Ken, by the way, I'm just making up any kind of generic name that came to mind, but oh, Ken, I'll tell you, when he stands up and prophesies in church on Sunday, whoa, what a man of God, you know, the glamorous, but you know, did you hear the way that Ken spoke to his wife after the meeting, you know, the harsh way that he spoke to his wife, where's the kindness, where's the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, that are the fruits of the Spirit evident in that person's life, I would maybe go one step further, and say to you as well, if the, if the fruits of the Spirit aren't present in your life, it might be wise to actually refrain from using the gifts of the Spirit. Okay. So anyway, you see my point. Let's read together anyway the, 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 um, this passage where we find this in the New Testament. This is Paul's letter to the Galatians. And for the sake of getting the context as well, getting the proper context, we'll read the, a few of the preceding verses. So 13, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do whatever you want. Gosh there's a sermon in itself just there isn't there. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. He lists this big long list. Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And such, and such things, against such things rather, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So to summarize, Paul says there are, um, there are works of the flesh. There are acts of the flesh. So these destructive behaviors um, that lead to pain, that lead to suffering, um, that lead to conflict, that lead to division, and many, many, many other consequences, okay, acts of the flesh. But he says, for Christians, and, you know, let's make no mistake here what I'm talking about when I say Christians as well. I'm talking about people who have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. I'm not just talking about the person who attends church on Easter Sunday once a year or the person, you know, who was baptized, who was christened when they were a kid, you know, or the person who listens to songs of praise every Sunday. I'm talking about somebody who has uh, trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. He says Christians are no longer ruled by the flesh and its destructive desires. They are people that have found freedom through Christ to walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. So, so put simply, to summarize this, what Paul's getting at, if you are a follower of Christ and you are allowing and inviting the Holy Spirit to work in your life, then these nine behaviors that he talks about should be evident in your life. To varying degrees, of course, because we're all on the process of sanctification. In other words, you know, we're all... We're all on, uh, to varying degrees on the journey of becoming more and more like Christ until the day that, we, you know, that we're no longer in this, in this world. But nevertheless, these, these, these nine behaviors should be evident in your life. So, that's an introduction to, you know, to, this, um, to this series, The Fruits of the Spirit. So, uh, as I said, we're going we're gonna to get a bit more specific now and we're going to hone in because we're going to be doing one of the, holy, uh, of the fruits of the Spirit each week. So my turn this week, we're going to do it in order, because I'm British and we like order, don't we? Um, so we're going to do it in order and we're going to be talking about love. Say to your neighbour, love. Love. Okay. So what is love? My word, if ever there was a million dollar question, eh? If ever there was a question of great magnitude, and I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm just being honest with you, I find it quite painstaking this week actually preparing this message. Painstaking in a sense that you look around at the culture that we live in today, and I don't know if you've noticed, but love has taken on a very distorted view, hasn't it? A very, very distorted view. So I will warn you, we're on a little bit of a collision course this morning because we're going to look at the Bible. And the Bible's view and the Bible's definition of love is very, 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 very different to that which you probably experience in 
you know, in your workplace, when you watch the TV of an evening, when you, you know, sit in a coffee shop and listen to people. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, that we're walking around pointing fingers at people. But what I'm saying is that we live in a culture where the definition of love has um, drifted so far. It's drifted so far. Thankfully, the Bible provides us with a true and pure and perfect picture of love. So, where we start is, is Marina in here this morning? Is she downstairs? Oh, praise God for that, because I'm going to cuss the English language, and she's an English teacher. Um, but <laughs> she's, if there's any other English teachers in here this morning, I'm sorry, I'm going to offend you. The English language doesn't do a great job of defining what love is, because we've only got one word for it. Um, so we're always counting on context, the context that we use the word in to define what we mean. So for instance, you might say, I love chocolate. Or, and plenty of you do, don't you? My wife, you certainly love chocolate, don't you? Um, I might say I love football. I do love football. You might say you love you know, various different things. But we also might say I love my wife or I love my husband or I love my, my children. Now, we use the same word, don't we, to, um, to express how we, our affection for all of those things. But how on earth you could equate love for chocolate to the love of your spouse or your children is beyond me. Okay, so um, this is what I mean. We're always trying to count on context in the English language uh, to define what we mean by love. So the New Testament, uh, Greek, you know, the language that the New Testament is written in, which is Greek, does a lot better job of it uh, because there's multiple words for love. I mean, I actually, you know, this week just looking into it, apparently some Persian languages have up to 70 different words for love. You know, so, you know, that's quite impressive, isn't it? That is, you know, so you can really hone in on the specific context of what you, of what you mean. But yeah, the, the, the New Testament language, which is, is written in Greek, does a, a lot better job of defining love. Um, so it's got multiple words for, for, for love. There's eros. Erotic love, sexual love, for instance. There's philos, I think that's how you pronounce it, which describes brotherly love. Um, there's agape love, which you're probably familiar with. And this, this is a, uh, a very unique love that is only, only unique to God. Um, I've written in my notes here, this love, this love agape, um, expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being, in other words, God, towards entirely unworthy objects. Sorry to burst your bubble, but that's me and you. Um, you know, agape love. It talks about this, this constant, unbreakable love um, that God shows towards people that don't deserve it, basically. And it's a love that only he expresses. Um, C.S. Lewis, you know, I found this week... I only just re recently discovered that he wrote a book called The Four Loves. I don't know if you've ever read it. I think it's one of his, it's da it goes down as one of his classics. But he wrote a book called The Four Loves. Um, and in it, he categorizes, which is really helpful, he categorizes um, love, the love that human beings show into four categories. The first one is affection. The second one, friendship. The third one, as I said, eros, sexual love. And the fourth one, charity. Now, when I say charity, I don't mean in an organisational sense. You know, like you've got a charity number, and you know we send, you know, we send money, and you've got trustees and all that kind of stuff. When I say charity, I mean in the sense of um, the giving of goodwill, the giving of goodwill and generosity and help towards others. And 
In this book, he describes how, and this is really magnificent, I think, but he describes how the first three of those loves, affection, friendship, and eros, sexual love, come naturally to human beings. We don't really have a problem expressing those. But the fourth one, charity, he explains how if we don't have charity, if we're void of that one, then all the other three become corrupt. Um, he, exp he explains how without charity, all the other ones become distorted and bitter and even dangerous. You know, that's, that's very true, isn't it? You know, you only have to turn on the news to probably see that. So for us today, um, we're going to look at love from... I'm going to try and come at it from, from in three different ways. First one, we'll talk a little bit about what our culture says. You know, I've only got probably like another 15, 20 minutes or something like that, so it's going to be a, very <laughs> it's going to be a little bit basic, I warn you, of course. Um, but we're going to look a little bit about what our culture says, because it's important to know what our culture says, isn't it? If we're on mission in our culture to win people for Christ, it's probably a good idea to know what the culture thinks, isn't it? Um, Second thing is we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul said. We're going, to come at his, uh, we're going to come at it from his angle. And then we're going to look at the Apostle John as well. Both of them had a great deal to say about, about love. So love through society's perspective. How many of you were alive at the time when the Beatles famously sang, you know, all you need is love. Da, 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 da. You've got to do the trumpet part, haven't you? So... There's more of you. I can't just say, by the way, I said who was alive when the Beatles did that, and loads of people have left their hands down. I'm thinking to myself, you were definitely alive when the Beatles sang that song. <laughs> You're taking years off yourselves, aren't you? <laughs> so, you know, they sang the song, didn't they? What, mid-60s or something like that, long before I was born, you know, just less than 20, 30 years before I was born. But they sang this song, All You Need Is Love. And can I just say, the church sings the same words, but can I say... It's not the same kind of love. It's not the same kind of love. The church is saying the same thing, but saying it in a very, very, very different way. Um, you know, as I say, that wasn't in the that was uh, that was in the charts long before I was born. But you don't have to be a genius to work out that um, the love that they were talking about was basically, you know, looking at love through sexualized eyes. You know, all you, you know, it was the. It was the mantra, really, wasn't it, if you like, of the free, free love movement of, of the 1960s sexual revolution and all that. What they meant by free love, basically, was free sex. That's essentially what it meant. Um, it was looking at love through the, you know, the, pr the prism of sexual promiscuity. Um, you know, and as we know, the free love movement has actually turned out to be rather expensive, hasn't it? It's actually turned out to be rather costly to human beings. Broken relationships, um, broken families, and all that goes along with that, the societal problems that go along with that, the increase of sexual violence, especially towards women, um, the pornographic objectification of men, women, and horrifyingly children. You know, the free love movement, I know this is quite strong, but I'm trying to point out the free love movement wasn't free at all. It's come at massive cost to so many people. And I was saying that, that um, to somebody, I can't remember who it was, but isn't it ironic that the thing that was, you know, this movement that, was, uh, that promised such freedom, that promised such liberty, has actually turned into the chains that bind so many people. It's sad. Very, very, very sad. Um, it's costing us a lot, isn't it? So, you know, in the context of sex, 
It's all right to talk about this in church, by the way, isn't it? Yeah? Nobody's offended by this or anything. Um, it's important that we, you know, that we address these subjects. But, you know, in the context of, you know, of sex and relationships, um, it's interesting that, you know, the eros, the eros, erotic sexual love aspect of love, you know, that C.S. Lewis is talking about, I find it's interesting, isn't it, that usually in today's society, that's the top priority. As far as I can see, it seems like that's, you know, top of the, you know, top of the charts, isn't it? That's, that's the thing that's on the pedestal. You know, people get together, people get in relationships, uh, into relationships, and, the, you know, the defining factor is, you know, is sex, which, again, like I said, is, is quite sad, uh, and it goes over and above the other qualities, the other aspects of love, like affection and friendship and charity. You know, but this is another great example of where Christianity flips that thinking on its head. It flips that thinking on its head. Now, eros is very important. All the married people said, amen. I don't know if you noticed, but that's an important part of marriage, isn't it? Um, but Christianity thinks, uh, it flips this, uh, this mentality on its head uh, and literally teaches the opposite. It teaches us that, you know, before, before getting to the covenant of marriage, it's important to actually place the other three over and above eros. Make that the bottom of the pile. The, the point is, you know, why? Because God's a party pooper. No, not because he's a party pooper. It's because he's in the business of showing us the safest and best way for us to experience healthy and joyful marriage. That's the point. People are so quick to label God as some kind of party pooper. He's not. He's somebody that cares about you and wants the very best for you. We just make a habit of going against, you know, his best way and making a hash of things. Um, you know, I, I heard another pastor, who you know, a great guy who, who teaches on, on marriage. Um, he, was, he was talking about how the, you know, the dating process or, you know, if you're from a different era, the courting process. That part of a relationship, you know, when you get together before you get married, basically. He was saying that the dating process is not about you finding out whether you're, you know, sexually compatible with another person. Which is very often how it's treated today, isn't it? You know, I'm going to try somebody out, which I find, I mean, it's quite arrogant, isn't it, really? <laughs> he said the dating process isn't about that. The dating process is about you finding out somebody's character. Finding out somebody's character so that you can make a decision as to whether their character is compatible with the life that God's calling you to live. And that's why we save the Eros until marriage. Because it's very hard to find out somebody's character when that's in play before you get there. So many people hamstring themselves um, before they even get to marriage because they put the, you know, the eros, the erotic love, as the top priority above all the other expressions of love. And God says, no, put the other ones first. And the, you know, the eros will come at the right time. Sol uh, you know, Song of Solomon says that, doesn't it? Do not awaken love until it so desires. So anyway, I'll, I'll get sidetracked a little bit there. I'll, you know, I'll come back. I'll come back, but these, these are important matters for us to talk about because God wants the best for your life. And me as the pastor here at this church, I want the best for your life. I know our leaders all want the best for your life. So, you know, even though the, the world, you know, has this barking insistence that you should not be denied whatever it is that you want, that's really the perception of love in our culture today, uh, 
God says something different because he actually knows what is best for you. And he knows that in the long term, his way is going to prevail as the best way for your life. It'll cause, it, it won't cause damage. So don't get fooled. God's way is still the best way. Our society places huge um, emphasis on, upon personal preference. Upon personal preference. You know, you'll probably hear it all over the place today. Oh, you know, just let them live their life. Just let them live their life. You know, let them do what they want as long as people are happy. If I, if I had a pound for every time I hear that every day, I would honestly, I'd be a millionaire by now. Because it's everywhere, isn't it, that mentality? You just let people be happy, let them do what they want. That's a surefire way to ruin your life very, very quickly. Society places a huge emphasis upon personal preference. And what results then is a distorted view of love that accepts everything and disallows virtually nothing. Because, you know, because if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. But that's not what the Bible talks about, is it? It's not what the Bible talks about. Because God very often disagrees with us, yet nobody loves us more. So the issue is that when we make the standard of love, you know, our natural right to feel and act in whatever way we desire, the consequences are grave. They really are, aren't they? People get hurt. Uh, lives get destroyed and as far as I can see societal problems increase rather than decrease I think the mentality is if you just let people do what they want then all these problems that we've got in society will go away as I've just explained we've had a crack at that in the 60s haven't we and it's not really worked you'd think we'd learn our lesson wouldn't you so you know we can come up from from so many angles um, but just think about you know, just think about it from this angle. You know, we're talking about societal problems that, that, that this mentality causes. You know, think about broken family. Think about broken family. And I'm being sensitive as well because I know that, you know, even people within our church have been, through, um, have been through painful splits and things like that. So I am being sensitive how I walk with this one. But just think, I'm not even just talking on a national basis, like a I'm talking about you even in your own life, within your own sphere of friends, within your own family, within your own acquaintances. How many families do you know that have been broken um, because of, because of self-preference? You know, what I mean is, you know, my needs, are, um, my needs are greater than your needs. My needs aren't being fulfilled. Um, you know, we're just not compatible anymore, so I'm off. How many families do you know that have been broken because of because of that mentality. You know, and this breakdown has been happening at an alarming rate for, you know, for decades, hasn't it? And it's, it's, it's prevalent now. It's still happening. It's still happening. And it's all done in this name of, I must not be denied, um, you know, I must not be denied what I feel is best for me. The only problem is sometimes what we think is best for us definitely ain't best for anybody else, is it? Anyway, I heard it was said recently um, that love is appealed to today in our culture as the unchallengeable principle. The unchallengeable principle. And I'll explain what I mean is, you know, it's almost seen like this, it's almost seen like this fundamental right, um, this fundamental human right that must not be challenged. You know, because if you challenge me, you don't love me. Um, Unfortunately, it pushes our, our world into one hell of a mess. I know you might think that those are strong words that I just used there, but you know, I, I'm actually, I'm, 
I think they're appropriate words. It does push us into one hell of a mess. It does. You'll hear people say, you know, well, how can you argue with love? How can you argue with love? Or, you know, how can you challenge love? It's appealed to as the not-to-be-denied right of our human nature. I must not be denied uh, this right because that isn't loving. And, you know, and so anything goes, and it, it certainly appears to, doesn't it? But the truth is, God's word butts heads. It really does butt heads with that definition of love, and it exposes it as inadequate. It exposes it as inadequate. More than inadequate, it exposes it as damaging to our souls. You know, I'm sure you, you've probably come to realize I'm pulling no punches today. I'm quite passionate about this. Um, you know, and I make no bones about it because it is inadequate. Because the love of God goes far deeper and far wider than uh, the love that we see in our culture. Far deeper and far wider. So how do we know that God loves us? Right, I'll come on to the Bible now. Now that you feel depressed, I'll come on to the Bible and I'll encourage you. How do we know that God loves us? Well, or how do we, you know, what's our perception of love? Maybe you, uh, maybe you were in a, a, you grew up in a good family, you know, where you've got a good mum and dad that loved each other and you felt secure. So you probably say, I think I've got a good perception of, of what love is. And that's great. And I would say, you know, so do I. Others obviously weren't fortunate enough to have that. Um, you may even say to yourself, well, I just feel that God loves me. And I'd say, you know, brilliant to that as well. So do I. That's great. But the point is this. The way that God shows his love for us. I mean, we sang a song earlier on, didn't we? Uh, is it extravagant or whatever? It was talking about how it's, you know, it's a mystery and we'll never fully comprehend. And yeah, we won't ever. I don't think we will fully comprehend but we can, um, we can get a good understanding of how God loves us because we see it in the cross of Christ. That's the point. The primary way that God shows his love for us, the most clear way that God shows his love for us is the cross of Jesus. It's the cross of Jesus. The fact that he gave what was pr most precious to him to die for us. And that is a far cry from the feelings-driven, um, you know, dialogue of our present society you know with all of its barking insistence you know that feelings 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 feel how i feel don't deny me how i feel it's a far cry from that mentality isn't it this is a sacrificial love that kills itself for the sake of the best for for, for the best sake of others so you know i'll come back to those words uh you know that the beatles sang all you need is love you know, the church sings the same thing in a very different way. The Apostle Paul, let's come to his angle on love. He said, um, Romans 5, this is, Romans 5, 5 to 8. This will knock your socks off, by the way. If you read this properly, this will knock your socks off. Romans 5, 5 to 8, is it on the screen? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. You see at just the right time. When we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7. It says very rarely will anyone die. For a righteous person. Though you know, for a good person. Someone might possibly dare to die. And that's happened at various times in history. Hasn't it? But verse 8. And this is what will knock your socks off. It says. But de God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 
Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, let's just break it down a little bit. Paul, uh, Paul says, while we were still sinners. What does that mean? In other words, you had nothing to offer God. There was nothing about us that, that would make God go, oh, I'll tell you what, these guys deserve it. I need to, yeah. There's nothing that we could offer God. Yet he made the highest sacrifice for us. What Paul was saying this, love is best seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. God gave, the son died, we were set free. This is love. This is love. If somebody comes to me and says, you know, define love, the Bible makes it very easy for us. You know, you don't need to do a, a three-part sermon or anything like that. God gave, the son died, you and I were set free. This is love. That's the, the highest, that is the best definition of love that you will find anywhere. A greater definition of love does not exist in our world or in our universe. If you like, I've, I've written this in my notes, the cross is our gold standard of love. It's our gold standard. You know, I, I know it's quite a brutal picture as well. It's quite a brutal picture of love when you think about it. It's quite gruesome. You know, a man dying, literally being nailed to a cross. Blood flowed. I'm sure his organs were in turmoil. It was tortured. It was beaten. Yet in its nature, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. You know, and when you look around at our, our society today, when you look around at our culture today, you know, you'll see all these, as we've said, you'll see all these different portrayals of love, always self-orientated. Um, and it can be confusing, can't it? It can be confusing. But if you want to cut through the fog and the confusion of it all, look to the cross of Christ because there you will find the truest and richest form of love. A sacrificial love, not selfish, not, not self-orientated. A love that always uh, is desiring the best for others. You know, and my friends, if I can say this morning... The love of God displayed in Jesus Christ is love in its fullest form. It's a love that dies to self. It's, it's a love that always desires the benefit of others. But, but also, can I just say, don't fall into the trap of thinking it's just some kind of, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, isn't that lovely? We do the best for others, don't we? It, it, God's love is not nice. God's love is not, it, it's not nice. It's not weak is what I'm saying. In fact, it's It's mighty. The love of God is mighty. The love of God, you know, it doesn't pack up and walk away when things get tough. It never packs up and walks away. The love of God isn't intimidated by your faults and your flaws and your sins. God doesn't look at you on your worst day and go, I tell you what, I'm not going near today. The love of God is, is ferocious. The love of God is ferocious. You can see that just in the, if you want proof of that, just look at the cross. Look at the brutality of the cross. That this was the way that God purchased your freedom. And that's why, can I just add, God isn't afraid to correct us. That's why God isn't afraid to, uh, to come and, and discipline us when we need it as well. Because this you know, sentimental love is all well and good, you know, this nicey-nice kind of, kind of love. But then, you know, when the rubber hits the road and you need some kind of discipline, it's so easy to get offended, isn't it? 
the love of God, because it is ferocious, because it is mighty, because it's not intimidated by your faults and flaws, it gives God the right to come and stand beside you and say, do you know what, there's some things in your life that I need to correct. The, God, the love of God doesn't wait upon our preferences or appease our desires. That's countercultural, isn't it? That's very countercultural. Because he purchased our freedom at the highest price. You know, and there can be you know, an effort um, to distort the love of God as something that just you know, wants to make you happy. Can I say, God's desire isn't so that you would be happy. You, you probably, sounding like, it probably sound like I'm being a bit harsh this morning. Please, I promise you, I'm not. You know, God's desire isn't, that, that isn't to make you happy. That's, that's a bit weak. It is that you might know the joy of his deliverance. Next week we're going to be talking about the second fruit of the Spirit, joy. Part of that is we're going to be looking at the difference between joy and happiness. There's a massive difference. They're worlds apart. It's so important that Christians, that we don't allow our, um, that we don't allow our perception of love to become defined um, by a distorted and selfish perception of love. You know, what I mean by that is, you know, whatever suits me, whatever suits me. It's so, it, and it so easily creeps in, doesn't it? It so, it so easily creeps in. Whatever suits me, what is, whatever is best for me and my preferences. The Christian must always remember this, that the cross of Christ is our gold standard. God sets the example of love in that he died for us. God, you know, love is dying for. That'll make you get up in the morning, won't it? You know, if you lack motivation in your life, you know, I just, I just, yeah, I'll say it. If you lack motivation in your life, could I encourage you, you know, just dwell upon that fact that God died, that love is dying for. If you struggle to get up on Monday morning, or, you, or, or let's take it from our context as Christians, and, you know, some people say, I, I just try, I'm, I want to find out what my ministry is. And I think to myself, you know, quit worrying about trying to find what your ministry is and start dying. Start dying for people. Start giving your time for people. If there's that, you know, the lady at the bottom of the road, the single mum who's struggling, buy her the shopping. You know, get up and, and be a father to, you know, to the, to the kid whose dad's walked out on them. Be an encouragement to, you know, that person who is uh, who, who's desperate. You know, go and cry with the person that's grieving. And what I'm saying is this, you know, die to yourself. Love is dying for. So that's Paul's angle. It's Paul's angle. And I'm going to draw to a close. Kerry, if you could come and join, uh, come and join me this morning. And do you know what we'll do? That We're going to sing that song in a, in a moment to close again. The, the one extravagant, if that's all right, Kerry. Um, but the, the angle that, that the Apostle John comes from... Um, he approaches love as intensely practical, as I was just alluding to there. The, the love of God, the, the love that God has shown to us, rather, um, if it's truly made its mark in us, what John says basically is that that should, um, that should result in practical loving action towards others. You can tell somebody who, um, who's got the love of God in them. How, do you, how can you tell that? Because they love other people. And they don't just love the people who love them either. So Paul and Paul and John, by the way, if I can just say, they're not they're not in opposition to each other. Their views on love aren't in opposition to each other. 
it's two sides of the same coin. We're talking about the same kind of love coming from different angles. Um, John essentially was saying that the natural response of God's love um, shown to us through Jesus is that we then show it to others through our actions. He said this um, in John 15, verse 3, he says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. As I've said, John says this is what love is. Love is dying for. Love is dying for others. Seeking wholeheartedly the good of others. So, I could do with like two parts to this sermon, but I don't want to mess up the nine week, the nine part series. Maybe we'll revisit it some other time. But you know, if I can just conclude, and then we're going to stand up and we're going to respond to God's love by pouring out our praise and admiration, adoration for Him. Um, you know, love the fruit of the Spirit spoken of by Paul is a love that goes much deeper than me and mine. You know, if I can summarize what I'm saying this morning. The love of God goes far deeper than me. What's best for me? God does care about what's best for you. But here's the thing about Christian community is God's greatest interest is what is the best for us. That's what the New Testament shows us. Uh, it, and it, it, I find it it's quite, it's quite difficult because in our present culture, everything is me and my. And so because the church has a completely different culture, but it lives in this culture, it can be very difficult to, um, to remember that sometimes. That actually God's greatest interest is us rather than me. God's love rejects personal preference. It's a love that, it's a love that reveres God. It's a love that submits to his will and his purposes. And as a result of receiving God's love through Jesus, you know, this love desires the very best for others. I'm going to finish there, but you know what? Let's, let's just pray together. Before we stand to worship, you know, let's just bow our heads. Let's just bow our heads. If you've never responded before to God's love, maybe you've found this challenging this morning. Help us to love one another with the true sacrificial love of Christ.